I don't need to tell any of you that there are some hard times going on right now. And these hard times are happening on both a global and a personal scale. Yes, there's the, the huge things. There's the pandemic, and there's political turmoil, and there's racial unrest, and natural disasters. But there's also just a lot of hurting, suffering people, like many of us. So it might seem surprising to you that I would choose to speak on a song of joy today. Why at this time would I want to speak about joy? Well, because we need joy, even in hard times, even especially in hard times. We desire to have joy, and so we're actually, we're actively trying to find it in something or other every day, whether in relationships or friendships or pleasure or food or drink or intellectual pursuits or hard work or mindless entertainment or social media or rest or leisure or wealth or family or faith. Like every single day that we wake up, it's like we're on a daily quest for joy. So we need to know where and how to find true joy. And I believe the Bible has these answers. I believe we can have deep, authentic joy despite our difficult life circumstances. Even right in the midst of our circumstances, we can have joy. King David who wrote many of the Psalms that we know in the Bible, didn't have what we'd call an easy life. Right? He suffered a lot. And, and many of the songs that he wrote were written out of those hardships. And yet his songs also contain some of the greatest expressions of deep joy at the same time. I believe that's because of where David found his joy. Like his songs don't tend to rejoice much in amazing life circumstances around him, like a prosperous kingdom or a beautiful family or great wealth. Like life is good. No, all those things like may have been true of him at times. They weren't always true of him. And and yet he has he doesn't rejoice in those things. He doesn't rejoice in what's around him. And yet he has joy, and his songs express that joy because he finds joy in the Lord. And I'm getting ahead of myself because I actually want to show this to you in one of his songs. And hopefully it can become the song of our hearts today as well. So please turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Psalm 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can easily find one on your phone these days. And we'll get to Psalm 16. We committed for the year of 2020 to learn to sing the psalms together. So once a month, we're going back to a psalm, preaching it, learning to sing a song based on it. And throughout this year, we've taught you songs of hope in turmoil, waiting, trust, protection, lament, and other, among others. But if we're going to get a good balance of what the psalms contain, we need joy as well. And that's certainly what we have here in Psalm 16. So look with me. Right off the bat, we get a hint that not all was well in David's life. It says in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, 
For in you I take refuge. Prays for preservation and refuge. And we don't know exactly when David wrote this in his life. It doesn't tell us. It really could have been at any time. But did he write this before he went to approach Goliath? feeling small and helpless, powerless? Was it when they, he, he was on the run from Saul, hiding out in caves? Was it when someone he loved died? Like when his wife miscarried a son or his friend Jonathan died? Was it during his reign and when his very own son led a coup against his throne? We don't know. But there's actually a, a beauty in the ambiguity here because it can thus apply to any situation, including our own. You may feel that you are facing certain risks or dangers these days. You may be anxious about what life has in store for you. You may even feel that your life itself hangs in the balance. So, if you feel this need for preservation and refuge, make this your prayer. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, someone who needs refuge is called what? A refugee, right? And that gives us some vivid pictures for this. We might picture people fleeing from somewhere. They are in danger from warfare or famine, persecution, instability, in order to find safety and protection somewhere else in the world. And that's, what, that's how David sees himself here. He's fleeing from danger in order to find safety in the Lord. I wonder, do you see yourself as a refugee? Because in many ways, that is what we all are when we run to the Lord. And once we find refuge in God, it leads to having a confidence in him. Author David Mathis comments that real confidence is in rare supply. Playing it cool is one thing. It's easy to straighten your shoulders, arch your back, stick out your chest, and talk tough. But actual deep emotional confidence and security of soul is hard to find. And it should not surprise us when we are sinners surrounded by other sinners in a fallen and fragile world. How can any of us truly experience the deep peace and joy of authentic confidence in a world awash with facades of security? In Psalm 16, I think we can see it starts with admitting our need for this. Because David's pleas here, his plea in distress, quickly transforms into declarations of faith. And Mathis asks, hey, how does this change of heart happen? And his answer is theology. Rehearsing who God is for us can transform everything. What we believe about God can be life and death for us today. It will make all the difference. And that's what David does here. He rehearses who God is. And that leads him to unshakable joy because the Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy. That's really the big idea of this whole psalm. 
The Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy. David is very clear on this. Look at verse 2. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So he's, talking, he's speaking to the Lord. That's capital letters there. It's Yahweh, the creator and ruler of everything. But then he makes it personal. That so you are my Lord, or Adonai, my master, the one I serve. Like You're not just king over the cosmos. You are king over me. But if the, if the Lord is your Lord, you realize how everything good in your life comes from him. It really does. It says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you or besides you. Now, you might be skeptical up there thinking, really? There's no good? None? Well, yes. Just try to name one good thing in your life that didn't come from God. Go ahead, I'll wait. I'm not going to wait long because it'll just waste your time. <laughs> like we may think that we have earned or achieved or gained certain things in our lives, but who gave you the skills or the opportunities or the abilities to do so in the first place? Behind every single blessing in life stands a good and generous God. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Really, anything good that we enjoy apart from God will eventually leave us empty. Jump down to verse 4. I'm going to come back to verse 3. It says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. See, if we don't run to God for our every good thing, we will run after other things. That's human nature for you. You're idolatrous by instinct. There's one helpful effect of an event that has turned our worlds upside down, like this pandemic that we're in. It does a great job of exposing our idols, exposing what we care most about in life. Like, think about it. If our idols are taken away from us, we miss them dearly or we fight to get them back. So, for instance, we will break laws in order to still see our friends or families. Or maybe we'll, on the other hand, we'll break relationships in order to protect our precious health. Or we'll push hard for returns back to normal, like reopening schools or reopening gyms, so that we can get back to our work or back to our workouts or back to our hobbies. The things that are taken away from us. And on the other hand, if there's an idol that's not taken away, we tend to run to it for refuge. Hence why substance abuse has gone through the roof these days. Or why some of us are consumed by video games or streaming videos. Or why we can't stop staring at our phones or scrolling through them. Maybe we're just numbing the pain 
We're escaping hard things. Maybe we're addicted. But we're all looking for something. And we're all looking for some kind of fulfillment or peace or goodness or joy in these things. Pay attention to how you've reacted over the last eight months. It might just be revealing to you. But a thing like this doesn't just expose what our idols are. It also exposes our idols as frauds. As David observes here, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Like other gods will always fall short as gods. If your sorrows seem to be multiplying, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're in sin. Like there's plenty of, un, of innocent suffering in this broken world. But like, take this as an opportunity to examine your heart, to examine what's going on in your life, to examine your sorrows. Like, are you sorrowful because something you love or run to is disappointing you? If something else has fallen short, your troubles multiplying because your hope or joy are in another God, an inferior God. Does binge watching a show ultimately fill you up? Does being apart from your friends crush you? Does Getting wasted or stoned really make you happy or just make things worse? Is getting back to work really all that? Is getting back, like going to the, hitting the gym, is that really the answer to this life's problems? I can go on. But when we run after other Gods, we just end up exhausted and sad, disillusioned and depressed. Especially when life inevitably takes all of them away from us. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Essentially, David declares, I won't worship them. They're not worth it. And maybe you need to do the same. Like renouncing your other gods and returning to the Lord today. He's the only one. For the Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy. He's our only hope here. However, just admitting that he needs to be our refuge and exposing poor substitutes doesn't tell us how to do this. It doesn't tell us how to find deep and lasting joy in him. And that's what I think the rest of this psalm can do. David sings about how he finds joy in God. How he finds it. First of all, in verse 3, which we skipped over earlier, it provides the positive contrast to verse 4. Okay, verse 4 we just read tells us that idolaters end up suffering as idolatry isn't worth it. On the other hand, those who worship God are worthwhile company. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, the Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy, and we can actually find some of that joy in his people. So delight in his people. 
One way to find joy in God is to delight in his people. It says, I have no good apart from you, Lord. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Essentially, God's people are one of God's good blessings. As for the saints in the land, saints can also be translated as holy people or godly people. They are the excellent ones or noble or majestic ones. Whom is all my delight? Now, this doesn't imply that we are so amazing on our own. Not at all. We must not be prideful here. It is only a sign of God's mercy that anyone is a saint. But because of his mercy, God's word tells us that we've actually become a holy people. We are saints in Christ. Has anyone ever called you an excellent one before? No? A majestic one, maybe? No, why don't you turn to your neighbor? Say, well, hello, excellent one. Go ahead. Because if you've received God's mercy in Jesus, that's who you are now. But he's, he's made us this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And we might think, well, that sounds like high praise, like almost too high of praise. For God's people be all my delight. Like, that sounds idolatrous a bit, doesn't it? David Matthews explains well that David does not say that he delights in God's people rather than God. It's an outflow. Because he treasures God as his supreme treasure, he also takes delight in those who treasure God, God as supreme as well. His love for God spills over in love for those who love God. It's a, it's a good thing to delight in loving, serving, worshiping with, fellowshipping with the saints. And it's natural to find a level of joy in this. It's the way that God designed us. Now, some of you may object here and say, you know, this has not been my personal experience. Like maybe God's people have really hurt you at times. And that is often a sad reality on this side of glory. We hurt each other. But let me add to this to just say, in a healthy body, healing from those hurts can also be a glorious thing. A beautiful thing as we pursue confession and repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to see and to experience. If, if, I mean, if you've ever experienced this, you know that restored relationships can be all the sweeter. That's the reality of our relationship with God, isn't it? We hurt him. He pursued reconciliation with us. And now our relationship is that much more delightful. But whether our relationship with other saints has needed healing or it's never been hurt, when we unite our lives under Jesus' goodness, it can bring us much delight and joy. It's how it's intended to, to be. And, and this is one of the reasons 
why we as a church have actually prioritized regathering in this season. We're, we're trying to take all the safety precautions we can. We're not trying to pressure anyone. But we, we believe and we know from experience that God's people being together is essential. Yes, essential. <laughs> sure, we can forego certain things for a period of time, but not for long, not indefinitely. We can get creative. We can use technology. We can gather in small groups. But God's made it so that we'll find joy and encouragement and confidence in his people. It helps build up our faith, spur us on. And sadly, the more we keep ourselves apart, we rob ourselves of a source of joy. This is not just in the Bible either. A research study done by a Harvard prof recently found that people who regularly attend church services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. These are... Research findings that find this. And we don't just find delight in God's people because they love and serve and give to us. We find delight when we love and serve and give to them. And sometimes we think that we'd be far more comfortable or happier if we're on our own. But ironically, we often find that a far greater delight when we put other people first. More blessed to give than to receive. Rebecca McLaughlin explains this on that. The claim that it is more blessed to give than to receive cuts against the grain of our individualized, success-focused mindset. But a growing body of research suggests that giving is good for us. Volunteering has a positive impact on our mental and physical health. Actively caring for others often yields greater physical and psychological benefits than being cared for. And financial generosity has psychological payoffs. Good things. So, do you find delight in the excellent ones that God has placed around you? If not... Maybe put your comfort aside and find a way to serve them and see if that changes. We can find joy in the Lord as we find joy in his people. That's only one verse here. Okay, as David continues in verse 5, his focus gets on the Lord himself. You can look with me, verse 5 and 6. He says, the Lord is my, po my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And what I believe we can see here is that the Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy. So marvel at his grace. If you want to find joy and goodness in the Lord, marvel at his grace. David does this when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. God himself is his greatest supreme treasure. When David says that the Lord is his chosen portion, this is speaking of receiving an inheritance. So you might picture your parents preparing a will for when they pass away and 
and them coming to you and asking you, when I die, is there anything of mine that you want to inherit? You think, and maybe you say, well, you pick a, a sentimental something that they own, maybe a piece of art or a piece of furniture. Maybe you think big, think, I want the house. <laughs> or you say, I'm just happy with some money. Okay. Here, David tells God, all I want from you is you. All I want from you is you. You're enough. I choose you. You're what I want. When David calls God my cup, that's a metaphor for pleasure, like from drinking wine. So calling God our portion and our cup is like calling him our treasure and our pleasure. He's our truest wealth, our truest enjoyment. He's our ultimate good. Do we deserve any of this from God? Do we deserve to receive God himself? Of course not. This is God's amazing grace. And not only do we choose God, but he chooses us first. David finishes verse 5 by saying, You hold my lot. Think of the saying, it's my lot in life. Okay, it's talking about everything that happens to you in life. That's your lot. And here we learn that, that God holds our lot. He gives it. He supports it. He guards it. Whatever happens to us is from God. Now that might sound concerning at first. But as you get to know God, as your God, you get to know who God is. It becomes a very stabilizing truth. David considers his life, counts his blessings. He, he marvels. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines there refer to boundary lines, like on a property. A few years back, when we built a fence along our property line in our backyard, we had to make sure that this fence was built in, inside of our property lines, not in our neighbor's land. But imagine if, as we did this, and this didn't happen, but imagine if we got into a dispute with our neighbor over where our property lines fell. Okay, we, in order to figure out what was actually going on, we could go to the city. They have records of these kinds of things, find out exactly where, what part belongs to us, what we own, what we don't own. But then, imagine, okay, imagine if the city came back and told us, hey, listen, your property line goes way beyond what you think. Okay, actually... Your neighbor's entire backyard falls within your property. Actually, and the neighbor beyond that, too. Like that big tree over there, that's yours. That nice pond they've got over here, that's yours. That place structure. Actually, believe it or not, the whole block belongs to you. 
And we can go, wow, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. <laughs> now, that would never happen in our neighborhoods. But that has happened in our spiritual lives. If the Lord is ours, we have received way beyond what we think. Way more. Like 1 Corinthians 3 says that all things are ours in Christ. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all is ours and we are Christ's. God's grace to us is boundless. It's hard to even say there are boundary lines to it. And what have you received from the Lord? Life and breath, family and friends, providence and provision, love, joy, peace, forgiveness and adoption, salvation in Jesus. Hope. All manner of earthly blessings and even greater heavenly blessings to come. Truly, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance because God is our beautiful, wonderful inheritance. And when we recognize him as our greatest treasure, we can see his grace everywhere in our lives. As David continues, he rejoices over at least two clear expressions of this grace. Okay, and here's how I decided to describe this for you. The Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy, so rejoice in his guidance and security. I think those go together here. We should rejoice in his guidance and his security. First, his guidance. In verse 7. So I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So David praises God for the way he counsels and instructs him. Probably the, the clearest way God counsels us today is through his word, the Bible. How many times, like if we're, if you follow Jesus, like how many times has God's word guided us in our lives, reminding us of, of God's instructions and commands, revealing God's character to us, encouraging us with his love and his grace, reorienting us to the gospel, helping us to trust him and love him and follow him more. And as we meditate on his word, the spirit can often recall it to our mind. Even like David here, on his, lying in bed at night, he could be teaching us wisdom. The question is, how often do we rejoice in this fact or praise him for his guidance? Without him, we'd be so lost. But with his wisdom, we have a, a lamp to guide our feet. And second, we have his security. Verse 8. As I have set the Lord always before me, 
because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Sometimes life can really seem to shake us up, can't it? What it says is, with God, we don't need to be shaken. Sometimes it really tries to shake us, but with God, we don't need it. Notice, though, the reason David feels so unshakable here is because he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, to be at someone's right hand is to be either an advocate in court or a companion for a journey, both of which happen to be true for believers in Christ. But David trusts the Lord is there at his right hand because he's intentionally set his attention there. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. If you have a, a picture of some loved ones on your desk at work or as wallpaper on your phone maybe, those pictures are meant to continually remind you of those people in your life. How blessed you've been by them, how much you want to love them, how maybe they remind you to think of them, or pray for them, or give them a call. It's kind of that idea here. We should have ways that we keep the Lord always before us. So we can be continually aware for, of his love for us and our love for him. You can be creative, of course. There are all kinds of ways to do this, to keep our attention on the Lord. You can, you can put up scriptures in your home to meditate on. You can set alarms or reminders to, to read or to pray. You can subscribe to, to web pages or channels or podcasts that draw your attention to the Lord. And listen to edifying music. The list goes on. But how are we setting our, the Lord always before us? How are we keeping our attention on him? So we know that he's at our right hand. Might also add for your consideration, if you haven't been setting the Lord always before you, what are you setting always before you? It's going to be something. What constantly draws your attention because if we set our hearts and minds on things of God, we won't be shaken. But on the other hand, if we set our minds and hearts on other things, we likely will be shaken. Now, they don't provide the foundation that God does. When God is set before us, it is the way to joy as we realize our security in Him. Verse 9 says, therefore, so because of this, because the Lord is always before me, because he's at my right hand, because I won't be shaken, therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. My heart, my flesh, and we are souls and bodies, spiritual and physical, and God blesses both sides of us. So what does David mean then by my flesh also dwells secure, like my physical body dwells secure? Did, did, he, did this mean that he was totally safe physically? Did David think that he couldn't die? No, I don't believe so. I think he was more just saying he didn't have to worry about it. 
Either God would protect him from physical harm and death, or he would protect him through harm and death to the other side. But either way, he could rest secure because knowing that God was in control and that God cared for him. That's what let him rest. If he saw himself as invincible now, he wouldn't have written verse 10, which talks about him dying. Why could David rest secure in the Lord? Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's Hebrew for the, the realm of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. In other words, you won't let me rot in the grave. Now David did not say he would keep him from dying. He said God would save him from death. He would die. But God would not abandon him even then. However, we may wonder, didn't David's body rot? I visited Israel a number of years ago, and I visited David's tomb. Presumably, his decaying corpse is there to this day. But is David really there? Or is his soul before the throne of God? God never abandoned David's soul to the grave. And one day we believe his body will be resurrected in glory. So on one level here, I believe David was speaking of hope beyond the grave for himself. But, On another level, David was actually speaking about someone beyond himself. And I'm not making this up. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. God's word makes this connection for us. In Acts 2, as Peter preached his sermon on Pentecost, he quotes at length from Psalm 16. And he applies it directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter says. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says, concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And by the way, the wording's a bit different because this is translating from Greek. And the other is Hebrew. But he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, he died and rotted. So what gives? The answer, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne... 
He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Do you get what Peter's saying? Like this passage, this Psalm 16, is most truly about David's greater son, Jesus. He's the one that fulfills it. Death and decay come for us all, but decay didn't come for Jesus. He wasn't dead long enough. And it's because Jesus died and rose that we have hope beyond the grave as well. If you've never run to Jesus before, you need to. That without him, death and hell are destinies. You really have no reason for your heart to be truly glad and rejoice. No hope for that. But if you put your trust in him to save you, he'll become, like David says here, he'll become your portion. He'll become your cup. You'll have endless reasons to rejoice in the goodness of God forever. And you'll have a living hope for true life beyond this short life. Let us help you here. Aren't you tired of trying to manufacture short-lived joy on your own. Come to Christ. Aren't you tired of, of worrying about your future? Worrying about maybe your death, or on the other hand, ignoring your death? Come to Christ. Some of you who already love the Lord are also grappling with your possible death these days. Some of you have no idea that your death is right around the corner. This psalm is for you today. Set your hope in this. You can rejoice today and tomorrow, no matter what comes, like the joy that this hope can instill in you is better than any happiness you'll ever find in this world. Marvel at his grace. Rejoice in his guidance and his security. When you reach your final day, he will not leave you in the grave. Rise, he'll call you home. And then we will dwell in the presence of the Lord. Is how David actually ends this song. To, to find our joy in God. The Lord gives us his people, his grace, his guidance, his security. But there's perhaps no greater place to find joy than in God's presence. So enjoy his presence. The Lord is the only source of true goodness and joy. So enjoy his presence. Look at verse 11. Beautiful conclusion. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
anything that we can experience here pales in comparison to there. For now, God reveals to us the path of life, how to live an abundant life now, but even more so, how to find true, eternal, perfect life with him one day. Do you know that the scriptures describe our death day, believer's death day, as the day of our greatest joy? It does. In 2 Corinthians 5.4, it says that the, the mortal will be swallowed up by life. In other words, what you got now isn't life. The mortal will be swallowed up by life. That doesn't mean death is easy by any means. But its result, the result will be beauty and life that we can't fathom. Tim Counts says, the beauty in Christian death is that Death is when we begin to really live with the one we were made to live with, our Savior. In Jesus, it is not death to die. This is why King David can sing, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's like arriving home to the family you love after a long trip, only a billion times better. In your presence... There is fullness of joy, fullness of joy, complete, wholly satisfying, all-encompassing joy, joy without a hint of sorrow. So, God is not a killjoy. And we might sometimes imagine that God wants us miserable, and he just wants us to endure this life and then endure eternity. That following him means a life of drudgery, probable sorrow. And indeed, we may have sorrow now as we have trouble in this world. But he's overcome the world. And joy comes with the morning. Like, do you get that, that this is what God wants for us? Life, joy, pleasure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can get, we can experience shades of the joy of the Lord's presence now. Right? As his spirit lives inside of us. You know, he's with us wherever two or three are gathered. He inhabits the praises of his people. And he promises he'll be with us until the end of the age. But what we, the joy we feel now will be dwarfed by the joy of being with him forever. In verse 8, David had reassured himself that, that God was at his right hand. But in verse 11, he's brought to God's right hand. That'll be so much better. And Tim Keller says, if God is our greatest good, we get what can't be lost and will only increase infinitely. Someday we will not just sense him at our side, but see him face to face. In our resurrected bodies, that will be endless, unimaginable pleasure. Now we have nothing to fear. 
Remember the, the blessings of God's eternal presence that we saw in Revelation 7 last week? Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. In your right hands, there are pleasures forevermore. So if you're finding it hard today to find much joy, where are you looking? Make the Lord your chosen portion today. Choose Him. He is our very path to life. He's our path of life, and He is our fullness of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you take our eyes, even if necessary, wrench our eyes off of this world today and put them on yourself. Turn our eyes upon Jesus. Captivate us with the vision of your presence. Help us enjoy the presence you leave us now and anticipate what's coming one day even more so. For you're so good to us. Forgive us for the ways that we have taken our eyes off of you, for where we've gotten distracted by the things of this world. Purify us again. Lead us back to the cross. Lead us back to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.